Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Are we really going to question whether or not this was a lab leak? Are we really going to make uh, this a a serious argument that we're going to have in society? Are we really going to kid ourselves? Because we shouldn't. We shouldn't. When the Wall Street Journal put it out there that the Department of Energy, with low confidence, sees the leak sees uh, COVID coming from a Chinese lab. Low confidence does not mean that uh, they don't really take it seriously. If we remember correctly, it was A, the FBI saying with moderate confidence they think it leaked from a lab. But we were told there's no way it leaked from a lab. This was all political. Stop saying that. That's what people like Dr. Fauci and others told us. You couldn't even have the conversation. You weren't allowed to say the words. But why why not? Why couldn't you say the words? It is for that that there should be absolutely, positively, no forgiveness anywhere. As a matter of fact, your anger is rightfully placed. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. So good to be with you. Find everything, tonycats.locals.com. Tonycats.locals.com. The phone number, 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. The story out yesterday, Wall Street Journal. I'm staring at it right here. The U.S. Energy Department has concluded that the COVID pandemic most likely arose from a laboratory leak, according to a classified intelligence report recently provided to the White House and key members of Congress. The low confidence, which you'll note, I have noted, I noted in my morning show, I noted uh, in my uh, post over there on Locals, TonyCats.Locals.com, I noted the, the low confidence statement. Because the low confidence statement is taken as a, they don't take this seriously, that's not it at all. That's not it in the slightest. It's that they now say, well, huh. First they said nothing and now they go, huh. The report highlights how different parts of the intelligence community have arrived at disparate judgment about the pandemic's origin. Said differently from uh, Michael Gordon and Warren Strobel over at the Wall Street Journal, The report highlights how different parts of the intelligence community have arrived at disparate political judgments about the pandemic's origin. And that's the whole damn story. That's it. That is the story in an absolute nutshell. That's where Americans are at on this. I very often discuss the lack of faith we have in our institutions and how does one gain faith in the institutions when there is so much aggression towards the people from the institutions? You want me to trust the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice calls parents who are worried about their kids' education domestic terrorists? You want me to actually care about what the IRS says when the IRS worked aggressively to keep members of the Tea Party from having free speech rights back in the day? I was there. I watched it happen. You want me to 
believe that the FBI has my best interest at heart. When you see Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and Andrew McCabe and James Comey and the rest work aggressively to try and work against the duly elected president of the United States? Don't expect that from us. You want me to believe in the institution of the mainstream media, of journalism. When they said you're not allowed to say that the leak came from a lab, you're not even allowed to question it. You're not even allowed, not even allowed to mention it. And if you do, you're a racist. And then Big Tech came around and said, oh, we'll stop you from having this conversation. Oh, yes, we will. And all people want to do is say, well, well, do we really... Do we really think that a guy in a wet market in China ate a bat? I mean, all right, all the Ozzy Osbourne jokes aside, and they are hilarious. We think a guy ate a bat, and that gave him COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, if we remember the actual names of these things. And there, there are SARS viruses everywhere. Uh, and, 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 and that's from there, from that one, that's how it happened? It was the leap from animal to human? Because somebody had soup? Nah. Well, maybe, but... I mean, they they work on these things, and we know that uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci gave uh, to this guy, Peter Drasick. Is, isn't that his name, Peter Drasick? Uh, over there, Echo Health Alliance? That's his name. Peter Dazik, not Drasik, Dazik, D-A-S-Z-A-K, that he got money from NIH and, and he gave $600,000 uh, through this group EcoHealth Alliance to the Wuhan Virology Lab where, yes, it's clear based on the emails they were doing gain-of-function research. Gain-of-function is the idea that a virus does this, but what if we just tickled the virus? <laughs> and we... And we Wow, that was creepy. And we change it up a little bit, and now the virus does something much, 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 much worse. Right? Like, that's that's gain-of-function. Now, people will look at this and say, see, this is why we shouldn't allow gain-of-function research. Gain-of-function research should not be allowed. That's not true. If you talk to doctors, if you engage with scientists, if you read some of the papers, if you listen, they will discuss the value of gain-of-function. How it is scientists do their job? Well, scientists say like, hmm, what would happen if X happened? Yeah, you got your theories and, 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 and then you work your theories. But when it happens in a lab in the United States, I'm not saying it isn't dangerous. I, I agree. Clearly, it is highly dangerous. But you're able to sometimes create opportunities that are better for everyone. You create better health outcomes meaning that these manipulations can create great opportunities, great healing opportunities, great op great moments for our society to thrive. What do you think medical science is? How do you think these things uh, get created? Sometimes you're taking something, all right, let's try it this way, let's try it that way. There's a difference, and I think we can all agree on this, and, and certainly we could discuss the idea of whether or not we really want to do gain-of-function research. I don't mind that conversation. But there's certainly a difference between a U.S. lab and a Chinese lab because a Chinese lab is a communist lab and communists are not capable people. They are monsters. They are incapable, ignorant doofuses. They're commies. And that's why it's so easy to believe 
without any fear of hesitation that this leaked from a lab because communists are morons. They have no standards. They have only oppression. So with that knowledge, it's of course easy to see how this happened. And that's why people went to it. Now, some people went to, well, this was clearly weaponized by the Chinese to destroy the globe. I have never bought into that. You guys have been listening to me a long time. I don't believe that to this day. I don't actually believe that the Chinese weaponized uh, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, at the first. Ooh, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. You sit down. Uh, Daddy's not done yet. Here's a theory. What if we start with a baseline? There was absolutely no weaponization of SARS-CoV-2, and that was never the intent. A leak took place. This is what I believe, by the way. A leak took place. Where I am willing to show my anger is the moment when the leak was realized and China said, let's not tell nobody nothing. Let's just keep this right here. Let's just keep this little leak right here between us, shall we? Nobody needs to know that we may have had a little oopsie-doopsie over there in Wuhan. And that's how it went down. They never told anybody. They kept people in the dark for days, for weeks, for months. Months they kept the world in the dark about a virus that absolutely killed people. It didn't kill everybody. It wasn't this weapon of mass destruction. Certainly not everybody died, and we know plenty of people who didn't get any vaccines at all. They caught COVID, they're fine. We know people who didn't get any vaccines at all, caught COVID, and died. We also know that they had comorbidities. We also know people who caught COVID, didn't have a vaccine, survived, but have dealt with long COVID effects, just like we know with people who did take the vaccine, and all of those things applied. See what I did there? That's called being rational, people. I know, I know. Some people are shocked and stunned by it. But I'm here to tell you that it still works. This isn't about our reaction. This is about China's. China didn't tell anybody. And then China worked overtime with the World Health Organization, applying pressure to the World Health Organization to get them to say, well, look, this isn't China's fault. They didn't really do anything wrong. Oh, they didn't try and keep any data from us, when of course they did. And then you had the Peter Dasics of the world and the Anthony Fauci's of the world also backing up China, preventing the conversation of this leak from a Wuhan lab from happening prime time. That is unforgivable. That is criminal. And I believe we should treat them as such. Those people who acted in the criminal way, including Fauci, including Dasik, and including the World Health Organization, and including the Chinese. Your anger there is proper and justified and real. If you're anything like me, you are as disgusted by these people as anything else how they lied, how they put lives at risk. Because what? They didn't want to embarrass anybody? I thought the purpose of the CDC, the World Health Organization, was to get information out there so people could be safe. 
Oh, you don't need a mask. Oh, now if you don't wear a mask, you're going to kill grandma. What the bloody hell? How about the idea that China did not inform anybody, kept quiet, and certainly obfuscated while working to purchase PPE from around the globe? There's a whole conversation, uh, personal protective equipment, talking about masks and other things, that they're the, they worked overtime to buy things and send them back to China. So A, they could then sell these things to the world, and B, they could protect their own citizens first. They did this. They knew it. They didn't say anything. They were willing to keep it secret for months to make sure they were covered. Now, you might say to me, well, Tony, isn't that how you should, how you should do things? Let's argue that it is. Let's argue that's what you do to protect your citizens. Now the question is, you're the rest of the world. What's the punishment? I think some punishments are due China, if you ask me. Some serious, serious punishments are due. And the first one against all of those politicos, all of those in government, all of those in media who said, you can't say it leaked from a lab. Of course you can. Of course you should have. And you were right from the beginning because it was a very simple step to take. Uh, Far simpler than, oh, somebody enjoyed some bat soup in a wet market in China and that's what caused this. Department of Energy, the FBI, your mind. It leaked from a lab. Now what did China know and when did they know it? And when will they have to apologize? What is the punishment? You know my answer. Stop paying them back their debt. We owe them money? Not anymore. Look what they did to the American people. Look what they did to families. Look what they cost us. Zero. We'll pay that money back by paying off uh, nurses. We'll pay their student loans. That's what we'll do with the money. Instead of paying it back to China, stop paying them. Their actions require a response. I think that's the first step. You're not wrong to be angry. What China did is despicable. And what media did is despicable. So first, your anger may very well be at China, but we all know in the United States, our anger is at the politicos, at the leadership, at the media that prevented this conversation from happening, shunned people from having this conversation, attacked people for having this conversation, vilified people for having this conversation, and then censored them. That's the obscenity. That requires its own level of punishment. That's another subject for another day. Keep it here and find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. This is Tony Katz today. So I am not saying that you shouldn't pay attention to this whole conversation about China and, and the lab leak and what the Department of Energy is stating. I'm not saying you shouldn't pay attention to Russia and Ukraine. We're going to get with uh, Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, in, in a little bit. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pay attention. What I am saying is that it's National Cigar Day and you um, should relax. Yes, 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 yes. That's what I'm saying. That's clearly the answer. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good uh, to be with you. So what to smoke on National Cigar Day? It's very important stuff, people. 
Very important stuff. And I'm telling you that some people might go with the list from uh, Cigar Aficionado, their top 25 of the year, or uh, the, the Half Wheel list. Uh, Half Wheel is a, a pretty solid site of their uh, top 25 cigars of 2022. Both good, or you can go with my recommendations. Because when we did ours for Eat, Drink, Smoke, you guys know I, I host the, the largest cigar radio show in the country, Eat, Drink, Smoke. I should, I should say terrestrial cigar radio show. I don't know. Maybe there's somebody out there with just an online show that's just kicking my butt. God bless them. Go, go knock yourselves out. That's awesome. Um, so on my, on my list, I think, it, I think it was the top one on my list, is a group called Veritas Cigars, not Project Veritas. Veritas Cigars, uh, the three blends, I think was number two on my list, or was it number one on my list? Super, super impressed. So the three blends is actually a barber pole. Um, it's different uh, tobaccos uh, in, in the wrapper, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful styling. I thought the cigar was lovely as can be. I've actually had a lot of luck with uh, from Alec Bradley, uh, the Filthy Hooligan, the Shamrock, which is also a barber pole it's a candela and that's the green part of it and then they put it out for for saint patrick's day and then there's a habano and there's a habano maduro uh wrapper so that's how they create the barber pole there i think that one's pretty nice especially for a price point under 15 bucks because sometimes that's where people want to be and and veritas super impressed super super duper impressed with what they do and and who they are i would like to see more of them um, really, and they also have a whole a brand called the Torch, which I think is just terrific as as well. So you can do that uh, for uh, for National Cigar Day, which is very very important. Or you can go with the list uh, from from Cigar Aficionado. Now their top ten list is actually not a bad list. Sometimes I wholly disagree. Uh, not so much in this case. They start with the Sophisticated Hooker. What? Hey, phrase it. I'm just saying, that's that's what it's called from Arturo Puente. It's part of the rare pink. And yeah, that size, not every size works in the rare pinks. That one uh, does. They've got the Padron 64 uh, on there. The Le Bijou 1922, which is from my father. Another great cigar to do. And well, their, their top cigar was a Cuban, forget that. The Rocky Patel 6060. Um, I have smoked this cigar. I don't know it's number two. But I think you should try it and decide for yourself. And then you've got the people from Half Wheel who put the Sin Compromiso on there at number 10 from uh, um, uh, Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. Great, great smoke. And they've got the Davidoff Masters Selection from 2014. Also excellent. And their number one cigar, we actually reviewed on Eat, Drink, Smoke. It's called the Alfonso Extra Añejo number three. It's a Connecticut. It's an expensive Connecticut. It's a good Connecticut. So Connecticut wrapper is usually a little milder, a little easier. Maybe maybe it'll pair better for you with coffee. I don't know. People would consider it a morning cigar. Oh, it was very, very well done. Outrageously well done. So uh, check it out for yourself. Uh, you can do uh, the Alfonso Extra Añejo number three, uh, or you can do the Rocky Patel 6060, or you could do the Veritas three blends. Or just walk into your local tobacconist and say, I want to smoke something. Have a wonderful National Cigar Day. I'm Tony Katz. It is, yeah, it's better than going to war with Russia. 
You go to war with Russia, utilizing Ukraine to go to war with Russia. You're able to destabilize Russia, destabilize Putin, and you don't lose any uh, blood. You just lose some treasure, but uh, the treasure's worth it. That's the argument. It's seemingly a, a rather neocon uh, kind of argument. And there are a lot of people saying, we don't want to be involved in this. Why are we involved in never-ending wars? Ukraine's an absolutely terrible place, and Vladimir Zelensky is an absolutely terrible guy. Man, I am not making the argument that Vladimir Zelensky is the guy I want at my dining room table. I am not making the argument that the man is Churchill for the love of the Lord. I'm making the argument that maybe, just maybe, this is the way to destabilize Vladimir Putin. The problem is, what does it mean? At what moment do we get the result that we want? What is that result and why is it not shared with the American people? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Major Mike Lyons joins us right now, retired United States Army military analyst. You see him on TV and hear him on radio all across the country. Another $2 billion after, of course, the visit from Joe Biden to Ukraine. Let's, let's start there on the visit to Ukraine. What did you make of that visit? Was it the right move or the wrong move? No, I think it was the right move. It took a lot of personal courage, frankly, to, to do something like that. And for, for someone who's as old as he is to go through that was a physical demanding process. And it, it propped up. It worked out. It looked good. Um, I think that, um, you know, from, his, from a foreign policy perspective, it was uh, something that was good. Can't take it away from him. Not sure it was Churchwellian or whatever the other people want to compare it to, and, uh, but uh, it did take um, some amount of planning to do. He did put himself in danger, so I have to give him credit for that. I think that, um, but but the question gets back to you know we're going to work do do whatever we can uh, there, but what does that really mean? I mean we're going to continue to give them money, continue to give them supplies. Um, he's still not sending the F-16s. It doesn't look like the strategic weapons, and so the Pentagon I think still is influencing the White House, basically saying. We got to keep Ukraine on the defense, keep them destroying the Russian military in place, uh, but the, but not giving any capability for them to go on the offense. And right now, in a in a time of two sides fighting a war of attrition, one side attacks the other side's ability to wage war, and that's how they would do it. Well, right now, Ukraine doesn't have that ability. They can't attack Russia. They can't attack those drone sites inside of Russia. However, Russia inside the house, inside Ukraine, can continue to do it. So they now have a significant advantage. Let's now uh, take a look at what we're talking about here. This $2 billion more. There's always another $2 billion, another $20 billion, another this, uh, uh, another that. This is where we should spend our money, Major? That we should spend our money in this uh, fight? And by the way, it's, it's Vladimir Zelensky who always gets referred to as Churchill, and I'm, I'm not so much down for that, for that comparison. But um, we're now over certainly $100 billion. This is worth mm-hmm. it? This is the way to fight? Well, well I, I, this latest one it likely is going to be for ammunition and 155 artillery ammunition. I saw Bloomberg report a couple of weeks ago that, that said that that contract now has been put out. You see the government has said that uh, we're going to be producing more. Not really sure that is the case. Uh, artillery ammunition is produced actually by the government. The government owns the factory that does it. It's in Scranton, Pennsylvania, of all things. Uh, Joe Biden's uh, hometown there. It's funny. And, and, and yeah, and, and they, they contracted out to different um, defense contractors over the course of years. General Dynamics currently has it right now. And we know that they've put out this contract to, pr- to produce more there as well as buy more overseas. 
So I think a lot of that is going to have to do with the, with the supply chains and making sure that, they're at, that they have enough ammunition. Because if you do the math, they still run out of ammunition anywhere from six to eight months from now based on the amount that they're firing both sides at each other. I think that's what Russia is going to do on the other side, get one, 152. That's the millimeters they fire, 152 ammunition from North Korea and Iran. And it's still going to become an artillery war, I still think, for the next six months. So. A lot of that money is going to go literally to 155 ammunition. Yes, but it's, it's, I'm not asking where the money's going. Although I believe there are Republicans who want a full accounting of where the money is going, talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army West Point guy and a military analyst seen on uh, television and heard on radio stations across the country, none better than this station right here. I'm asking whether or not the money that we're spending is going to see a result. We still don't hear from the Biden administration the very concept of results. Dear Lord, what does this get us at the end? And we've spent $287 billion. I just picked a number out of the the blue. Mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin is what? Russia is what? Ukraine is what? There has to be as one would rationally see it, an end game. Otherwise, you're making the argument that it is a sustainable, valuable proposition, Major, to go mm-hmm. about this for the long term, multiple years. What's the end mm-hmm. game as you see it, as other analysts see it, and is Joe right. Biden willing to state what it is? Right. So, so Tony, over the weekend, too, you saw NATO countries um, now, from the military side, starting to talk about what kind of support they're going to give long-term, six to nine months. A lot of that has to do with how they want to negotiate a potential peace settlement there. I I think this is what it looks like. Russia does get to keep certain areas of Ukraine in the Donbass region, uh, areas that they had occupied since 2014. This war has been really going on since then. Crimea remains a wild card until Ukraine can actually threaten Crimea. Russia looks like they're going to control that too. Um, I think that um, the Dnepro River serves as a natural boundary between some of these areas there. Russia will create – there will be a militarized zone created between these two countries. Um, the, the, the battle will be frozen in place. You'll see a scenario similar to what we have in North and South Korea. We'll have another Cold War again. I believe that's what this is going to look like at the end. Now, from our perspective, from the military's perspective, that's going to work because – Ukraine is going to have destroyed a, a great majority of the Russian army in place. They won't be able to, to threaten them uh, for the next you know, five to ten years at this point, ba- you know, based on their capability. So what does Ukraine get out of that? Ukraine gets out of that EU membership, and likely now, I never would have thought, said this before, but now maybe five years down the road they get NATO. They get into NATO. They get more security assurances from the West once Russia has I been, got, um, let's say, you know. I, I got to hold so on. Let's hold say, on. You're, you're, you're making me want to drink bourbon, Major. Let, let's take a, a second here. There is a, a situation, as you see it, and maybe others see it, that what you get is basically a DMZ-like zone between Russia and Ukraine, and they get control of certain areas of, of the Donbass. And if that's the case, why, since we've known that that's a possibility, why aren't we already there? Mm-hmm. Why not just put an end to it? Why would the Russians want to keep losing person after person? I know they don't care about the people, but eventually you're going to eliminate the ability to engage population of the nation, which is a huge issue for Vladimir Putin. If this is the end game, why not do it now since everybody already knows? 
knows what that card plays out like. Well, Russia doesn't want to stop. They still believe, you know, their strategic goals and objectives are not aligned with their ways and means to accomplishment. They, they believe that they could still overtake the country. So, and, and on the other side, Ukraine believes that they can kick Russia out of those areas. And, and their strategic goals and objectives aren't aligned with their ways and means because right now they can't do that. They can't attack Russia's ability to wage war. They don't really threaten Crimea. They can't, they, they, they need to look for attacking the army, right? So when, 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 Units go to war like this, you attack the army or you take land. The Ukraine military should be focused on destroying the Russian military in place, and they are. They're doing a, a good job of that, especially uh, in, in those areas in the south. So the question gets back to whether R- Russia will accept that as, as an, a peace agreement and whether Ukraine will accept it too, because Ukraine has said that they won't. But that's what the West wants. The West wants Ukraine to make some concessions in order to stop the fighting create that kind of DMZ along the Dnepro and then further and then further east and then get back to rebuilding it. And what Ukraine gets in that is, again, EU membership and then potentially membership into NATO. Who believes that Vladimir Putin would accept that as victory? Um, I don't think he would. I don't think a lot of people do, but he might be forced to based on this, you know, war of attrition that's taking place. What's happened in his history is Russia goes into this freezing period when they conduct warfare. They did it kind of in Syria. They've done it where they just kind of stop fighting because they know the other side is not mustering enough of the offense in order to do anything about it. Now, I think maybe that's what they'll try to do. They'll try to freeze this thing out two or three years maybe. They'll try to see how much patience the West has with supplying Ukraine for doing this. Russia holds on to do what it can. Uh, but, uh, but again, until there's other leverage someplace. So wild card remains China. And, and deep down, China it's to their advantage that Russia is weakened because they've become fundamentally a client state of Russia. So they want to see Russia somewhat weakened, but they don't want to see them totally destroyed. That's not good for the world with 1,500 nuclear or so tipped weapons that they have sitting you know, inside of Russia that could be launched anywhere. So, so this is, 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 to my point, talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States uh, Army. Um, when I talk about Biden, First, first, when we talk about Vladimir Putin, I don't know if there's any way to get him to accept uh, some kind uh, of deal. I don't know who could possibly convince him. He see, It seems very obvious that he does not care how many people get destroyed, how many lives lost. He doesn't seem to be playing a long-term strategic game with growing a nation, nor a short-term strategic game. Otherwise, he would have played it already. And then on the China conversation, that really brings it back to Joe Biden, because if mm-hmm. you believe that that China, that Russia, as you've stated here on this program before, could become mm-hmm. a vassal state uh, for China, then it's even mm-hmm. more imperative that the United States have an end goal and an end game to this. A, a DMZ between Russia and Ukraine seems like a pretty ridiculous end goal, but maybe that's it. But it doesn't now solve the problem of what happens to Russia as it has been weakened and what China does. Is there anybody engaging a conversation about this major, a, a the, the no. issue of that reality? No, I think so. I do think from my sources there are folks within the State Department as well as NSC recognizing that, that threat that is there. But let's face it, Ukraine is not vanquishing Russia. It's not happening. It's not from a wartime perspective. They're they're not they don't have the capability to push them out themselves. Russia will have to do what they did in Afghanistan. That's leave. They'd have to physically leave those areas. Now, they've completely, again, wrecked most of the the area there. They've destroyed it, and they're continuing 
to destroy it, but that's that's the only way they stop, and perhaps that's part of their DNA. Maybe this does end when Vladimir Putin does decide to declare some kind of victory. He gets Crimea or something, and, and then he's now then taken down inside of Russia. I'm never an advocate of using that as a plan. I think that's just, just the kind of wishful thinking and a lot, but I think the DMZ idea, though, gets the fighting to stop, gets, the, gets, gets at least a pause in it, and, get, and allows Ukraine to take a breath because they're the ones that need it. They, they're the ones that are being outgunned. They're the ones that, are, that don't have the people that can go on the offensive right now. Let's um, move the conversation bef- before I let you go. Let's move it over uh, to this conversation uh, about China and the Department of Energy saying w- with low confidence that they believe that COVID leaked from a lab I- in China. Now, low confidence doesn't mean they don't believe it. Actually, to engage the conversation of low confidence means they have some reason to believe that this was a lab leak, a conversation that six months ago you would have been told you're a terrible anti-American racist bigot uh, for having. We now have the FBI with moderate confidence. We have the Department of Energy with with low uh, confidence. What does this idea that there is more and more proof that this was a lab leak do for U.S.-China relations? What does it do for China's perception on the world stage, for example, as it tries to further its dominance over Taiwan? Does this have any play negatively to China, meaning will it strengthen other nations to engage differently with them? So I, I don't know. I, I look everything you know through my military lens here. It's another example of China is more than just an adversary that they fact that they could have leaked this out, knowing it gets to the United States, knowing what it would do to our economy. Uh, I look at what they've done in, in the Spratly Islands. I've looked at what they've done in the South China Sea. I look what they're doing um, with, uh, with spy balloons. They're clearly an adversary. And, and, and again, on a, if they decide now to put lethal weapons inside of Russia to help in Ukraine, then, then the proxy war is on it on full at that point. China always does, though, play the long game. They usually have strategic patience uh, with everything, and there are countries, and especially in Africa and other third world countries, that will, you know, still side with them for no matter what reason because of what China does. To They're getting paid resources into their organization. So I, I don't know. I, I, I just think that the perception of the world is baked in what China is already. Major Mike Lyons, I appreciate you taking the time. M-A-J, Mike Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, Major Mike Lyons on the Twitter box. You can follow him there. More is coming up. Keep it right here. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. So the residents of New Orleans, that's New Orleans for those of you who don't pronounce it properly, are trying to recall the mayor, Latoya Cantrell. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Um, I don't know if they're going to have the signatures to do it, but they're trying because the situation, the murder rate, the violence, the level of unsafe in New Orleans has reached um, a freak show levels. Concerned, scared, people are out of their minds. This is a remarkably unsafe city. This revolves around the basic fact that citizens on many fronts don't feel like they're being heard and see a lack of urgency in the mayor to address the problems. This according to the city county, uh, the city council president, J.P. Morrell. I love this. I don't know if the people will be successful. But when residents stand up and say, this isn't what we want, this does not work. We can't live like this. We can't have this. We have to fight this. 
That is solid. So they're at the point in the process where they have to certify signatures on the petition. On the petition. So you've got an Orleans Civil District Court judge named Jennifer Medley who's going to hear the arguments uh, that are put forth by a group called No Latoya. Latoya can't trouble us, the mayor. No Latoya. Accusing the state of not updating the number of registered voters in New Orleans. And the recall organizers claim that the local registrar of voters has not kept an accurate list of active voters in the parish. So now, now we're engaged in other conversations about how poorly these records are kept up. And very often, that ends up being a level of purposeful to keep people from really having proper data and then being able to utilize that information for something like, let's say, this. Organizers sought over 52,000 signatures based on state figures showing 264,000 registered voters. But research led to the target being lowered to somewhere between 49 and 50,000. We'll see if they have enough signatures. We'll see who, what level of fight there are for the signatures, everything. Again, a whole different subject than the main one. The people of New Orleans don't want to live in a hellscape. Good on them. Good on them. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today.